We've cut about 46% of the trees on land since the dawn of civilization. The vast amount of trees and forests we've had, we've cut down. If you look at tropical regions right now, the vast majority of land being cleared is for either grazing or for feed crops. There was a study from the FCRN, which is the Food and Climate Group out of the UK, and they looked at where soy is going in Amazon. And the vast majority of soy is going to pigs and chickens in Europe and China. So yeah, this is why trees are being cut down. A more efficient system is focused a lot more on plants for human consumption. That's environmental researcher Nicholas Carter. And this is episode 136 of the Prove podcast. Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another Wednesday Wisdoms episode. It's always great to be here with you and I hope that you've been keeping well. If this is by chance the first time you're joining us, thanks for making it. My name's Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. Today we hear from regular show guest, environmental researcher Nicholas Carter on how our food choices impact the health of our planet, how our food choices impact the health of our planet, what greenhouse gases are, how agriculture affects climate change, why is looking at the amount of land we use for agriculture so important, what's more important, the types of food we eat or how far they have traveled, how much does buying local affect our ecological footprint. In this episode, All of these questions are explored, along with other parts of our lifestyle, outside of our diet that we can also look at to improve the health of our planet. Chances are, if you have caught Nick on the show before, all of this will serve as a good little refresher. I certainly enjoyed listening to a lot of the key information in this condensed form. And if you haven't listened to Nick before, I'm pretty certain I'm pretty certain that this episode may just inspire you to dig into the archives, to enjoy the more expansive episodes where we dove even deeper into the effect that our food choices have on our planet. So with that out of the way, this is Nicholas Carter with this week's dose of Wednesday Wisdoms. Enjoy and I'll catch you on the other side. our planet is surrounded by an atmosphere which acts as a a greenhouse just like a greenhouse in your backyard it allows living things inside of it to flourish so this greenhouse effect it's a process where gases in our earth's atmosphere trap the sun's heat and this allows our planet to be livable so if you look at mars it's a little bit further away from the sun so it's a little bit colder on its own too but they have a very very thin atmosphere where earth is a thicker atmosphere so How human activities contribute to climate change is by emitting these greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which almost works like a blanket. It warms it up 
And that's not just from fossil fuels, but that's from methane as well from cattle. That's from the inability to sequester this from the air. So that's a key part that's missed and we can get into that. But it's, it's not just what we emit, but it's also our ability to take it out from the atmosphere. So that's climate change. It's been measured over the last hundred years by NASA in various ways. You know, there's been detailed reporting on this for the last hundred years or more. And we were able to track what is specifically from human causes, what is specifically from natural systems, natural emissions from a wetland, natural emissions from termites, even termites emit all kinds of methane. So it's vastly on top of that. And it's the human related causes that put the last 100 years vastly warmer than any other period over the last several hundred. The big focus for me has been land use because land is how we sequester, how we bring these greenhouse gases out of our atmosphere. We can stop all fossil fuel use. We can stop emitting these greenhouse gases. And, you know, it's not easy. It's a very difficult task to do that. So the two big things we can do is stopping that or enhancing our ability to sequester this out of the air. The only widespread way of doing that to any significant measure is forest, it's trees. There's grasslands that can do it too. There's vegetations that can do it too. Wetlands can do it. So it is our overall land that can help sequester that the most. So if you look at what's the biggest user of land, it's agriculture. 40 to 50% of all land is used for agriculture, most of that being animal agriculture, livestock, grazing, at very little return in terms of calories or protein. If you look at the percentage of how much land is used for growing crops directly for humans, it's only 5 or 10%. And think of everything that is, potatoes, veggies, oats, corn, everything. For direct human consumption, it's only 5 or 10% of all land. So you can see right away, if you look at overall grains being grown, it's 50% of all grains being fed to animals. Soy, soy is a huge crop globally. 80% of all that is going directly to livestock, mostly pigs and chickens. They're not just taking that and efficiently converting that into flesh, into meat for people. There's something called feed conversion ratio. Take chicken. Chicken is the, the largest amount of farmed animals across the world, just a huge, huge amount. If you feed a chicken 100 calories of grain, you're only going to get 12 calories of chicken in terms of meat back. So it's a huge, huge inefficiency. So you're growing all this grain, you're feeding it to chickens, and they're only returning a percentage of that back. So it's usually about 10%. And if you're doing that for beef or pork, it's much, much less efficient because they need to use this to, to operate as a, as a mammal, right? Yeah, so you feed 100 calories of grain to a feedlot cattle, and they're only going to return three calories of beef back. There's two basically different ways of feeding farmed animals. It's growing feed crops for mostly confined animals or putting them out on pasture and, and they're grazing and they're eating grass. That doesn't work for chickens, pigs, and a number of other farmed animals. It works specifically for ruminant animals. So for cows, for sheep, sheep and lamb and buffalo, even in some areas. So right away, you're limiting some. So for those ones there that are grazing, the vast majority that are grazing they're grazing for a longer period of time in their life. They're using up more land and they're still finished, usually for the last 100 days of their life with feed. So they're still feed crop waste. But say, you know, I'll even play devil's advocate with myself. So you look at certain areas that are grazing their animals exclusively with grass. Even with that, because they're eating more of a fibrous diet, because they're eating more grass, it's going to emit more methane. So if you take a cow that's in confinement or you take a cow that's been on pasture, it's going to be on average four times more methane emitted when they're on pasture. One of the biggest studies 
Alexa Agriculture was the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization. And this was a big part of my thesis work. A lot of their recommendations involve urging the world to transition to feedlots, to factory farming. They'll call it something differently, but that's essentially what it is. And the reason for this is in some ways it is better. In some ways it's better for the environment. But of course it comes with a trade-off is it's, this is where zoonoses are bred in a big way. Nobody likes factory farms. You show them any footage. This is just not something that they like. And a lot of people will think, okay, well, I get all my food from animals that are grazed, right? But that's just not the case for the majority of the world. I know in Australia, for example, where you are, there's a lot more animals that are out on pasture, but there's a trade-off. And the FAO is specifically focusing on intensification, which would be factory farms. I'm interested in, okay, this area of land never had trees. And so this is the only way to use the land. This is a, a common theme in agriculture. So the only way to use this land effectively is to put cattle out there and allow them to eat the grass and then, you know, we can eat them. This is a common, common story that's, that's told. So I looked up the stats on this. I looked up overall tree loss and humans overall, we've cut about 46% of the trees on land since the dawn of civilization. So the vast amount of trees and forests we've had, we've cut down. And if you look at tropical regions right now, the vast majority of land being cleared is for either grazing or for feed crops. So for growing soy, for growing different grains, and these grains and, and soy being grown are not for human consumption. In the Amazon, it looked at, there was a study from the um, FCRN, which is the uh, Food and Climate Group out of the UK, and they looked at where soy is going in Amazon, and the vast majority of soy is going to pigs and chickens in Europe and China. So yeah, this is why trees are being cut down. A more efficient system is focused a lot more on plants for human consumption, so it's a combination of different methods of growing plants through what would be called polycultures. So there's two different terms in terms of growing plants. There's monocultures and polycultures. And if we just switch all grazed land to growing monocultures, this is just like rows and rows and rows of corn, for example. Very damaging to the soil. It's not a very sustainable thing. You can't do this long term. So you need to do it in terms of like rotating crops, which is polyculture. So that's one way for sure. A lot of the land being used for grazing and used for feedlots and used for growing feed crops should just be rewilded, should just be protected land, should be land that where possible can grow forests. There needs to be a value put to this in order to do that. And it's not going to be an easy transition because there's, there's lots of jobs involved with that. There's major economic and political concerns with regards to doing that. And that's a big reason why it hasn't happened. There's been a, a steady level of the same or increase in grazing land across the world. So a system that we need to shift to is an overall plant-based system. It's, it's a plant-based system for production. And uh, we also need to, at the same time, create revenue streams for consumers and, and companies to to consume these plant-based products because it can't just be a shift from the production side. It can't just be a shift from the farmer because they need support too to have places that they can sell into. But when you're looking at only 10% of this feed that we feed to animals actually converting into meat, then that's just a 90% waste off the top that the world is seeing. If we were to all switch plant-based, there's all kinds of news articles saying how a vegan world is just not possible, a plant-based world is just not possible. Most of them are just not understanding feed conversion rates. They're not understanding land use. They're not understanding the issues of biodiversity loss and habitat loss with regards to farming. 
and not understanding the the massive valuation of methane and how damaging this is to our atmosphere. If there's a specific country that doesn't have enough crops or food or plants for human consumption, we have a global system of trade here. And people might think, okay, well, I don't want food being shipped all across the world. This is a very damaging thing. But as you know, there's a number of studies out on this that shows what is the footprint of food and the travel and consuming food from somewhere else is less than 10% of the footprint of the food we eat. So I, I don't know the situation specifically there in Australia, but I can say that there's vastly enough land to support not only this population, but 10 billion plus people that we're predicted to have on a plant-based diet. There is reasons, there are lots of reasons to support local. It involves the economy, local jobs. But when you lump in buy local with food and how that's an environmental decision, it's just not. Because for the environment, the best thing you can do to reduce your footprint is to eat less or eat no animal products. This is not just you know, one or two studies of a few different farms. The data, even based on that, that post you made, it's from 40,000 farms in 119 countries across the world. And it represents overall 90% of the food that people consume. So this looked at everything. And what it concluded is even the highest impact vegetable, take tofu, for example, or the soy, it still emits less than the lowest impact animal protein. So take your regenerative grazed beef from down the street, it's still going to be more impactful to the overall environment than soy shipped halfway across the world. That's just how it breaks down. One thing I've noticed is telling people what to eat is not a nice conversation to have. It's an uncomfortable conversation to have for a lot of people. It touches on your core as a human being growing up as a kid. This is a very uncomfortable conversation. And look at some of the strategies that PETA is used and almost like a shameful strategy. It's, I'd say it's about the worst is what you could do. It's not very productive. It's not education-based. It's not welcoming. On the consumer side, like we talked a lot about the production side. On the consumer side, I think the absolute best thing that governments can do, companies can do is making it easy to choose a plant-based option. This is something called default veg. So making the default option a vegan option or a vegetarian option if it's, if it's a certain place too. Doing that is going to substantially increase the amount of those options chosen. And there's been studies done on this. So there was a study out of Harvard. They made the default option vegan and it increased the amount of choices with nothing else done. There was, I think it was 41 to 71% more plant-based options chosen when that was one of the options. So I think this should start with government, schools, healthcare facilities. The last place that you should have a hard time finding a plant-based option should be any healthcare facility. And in school, you know, there should be all kinds of those options for that. What this is, is this is changing the infrastructure. Look at uh, just an example of transportation. So different countries across the world have focused their transportation systems in different ways, making it easier to bike in certain areas, make it easier to drive in certain areas. If you change the infrastructure, you'll make it easier for people to make better choices without any sort of shaming. For bikes, Copenhagen, one of the easiest places in the world to, to bike. And this is not by accident. They're a biking culture. This goes back into their history, but also they've just made biking highways and just it's so easy to do that. So this same thing needs to happen with plant-based options. So outside of that default veg strategy, which I think is so, so important on the consumer side, it's changing funding. So no more subsidies to these big livestock companies that are among the richest companies in the world. 
and, and more funding towards plant-based options. We need to factor in the in environmental economics, it's called externalities. All these issues of climate change, all these issues of land use, ocean acidification, this needs to economically be factored into who's creating it. And who's creating it in a lot of ways is these big livestock companies. So they need to bear the cost of that. And once they do, their products will be more expensive. They won't be chewed as much. I think that's, it sounds like an easy way to do it. That's, that's not easy to, to make these changes, but that is what needs to happen. It's different for each person, but across the board, some of the biggest decisions you can make is shifting your diet, shifting your diet to be mostly plant-based, if not fully. The study on that is massive. This is the same study that looked at 40,000 firms and 90% of what everyone eats. This is what they showed, that that's the biggest thing you can do to reduce your ecological footprint. They showed that across the world is 20 to 40% is how much you'll reduce your footprint. It'd be 20% in the States and in the UK, it was around 40%. So that's a huge amount right there. But outside of that, there's all kinds of things people can do that are high on that list for reducing your footprint. Flying less, consuming less, driving less. If you have the means, switching to an electric car is still a good option. Switching to solar panels and wind turbine, they're still good options. Although what really frustrated me initially when I went into environmental science is just how unattainable that is for the majority of people in the world. Being told, okay, put up some solar panels, buy an electric car, invest in renewables. This is just not something that's achievable for most people. Switching to eating more plants, especially now when even in the last few years, it's gotten so much easier to do that with all these alternatives that might not necessarily be like a healthy option, but they're vastly, vastly better in terms of environmental footprint. I'm talking like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, things like that. Yeah. So those are some things you can do. Uh, You can also look at other areas of food too. reduce your food waste. 30% of global food is wasted. And it's even worse so when you're wasting animal products, if you're eating that. So downsizing, consuming less, uh, composting, eating more plants, driving less, flying less. These are ways that you can reduce your ecological footprint. There we go. I hope you found that interesting. Something that certainly stood out for me in this condensed recap is the buying local learning. The buying local learning. It is so important that we understand this. This idea that local beef or dairy is eco-friendly is pervasive online. But as Nicholas explained, for most foods, transport actually makes up a very tiny amount of the overall food's greenhouse gas footprint. For beef, it's around 1%, which means that as Dr. Hannah Ritchie puts it, also a previous guest on the show, and I quote, whether you buy it from the farmer next door or from far away, it is not the location that makes the carbon footprint of your dinner large, but the fact that it is beef. I'll pop the link to that quote into the show notes so you can read the research that it's based on. It stems from Oxford University researcher Joseph Paul's 2018 paper published in the highly prestigious Science Journal, which looked at the environmental footprint of an enormous list of plant and animal foods from almost 40,000 farms across 119 countries, including Australia, New Zealand, USA, China, Germany, Canada, and the United Kingdom. This research and a mountain of other similar papers makes it stunningly clear What matters most is the amount of plants in our diet, not where our food comes from. 
Sure, buying local does have some merit. I don't want to totally write it off. That's not what I'm doing. I just think we need to give the conversation context. If we want to reduce our greenhouse gas footprint a tiny bit further, after adjusting our overall dietary pattern to a more plant-based approach, buying local will offer that a tiny bit of extra benefit. It's also good to support the economy of our local food growers. That I am absolutely on board with. But like anything, it's good to understand the big picture so we don't misrepresent what buying local means. Otherwise, we may overlook what is the biggest lever we can pull when it comes to improving how planetary friendly our diet is. That was my big takeaway from this episode. If you enjoyed listening, please do share it with your friends and families. In fact, one bit of feedback I've been getting over the past few weeks following this new format is that these shorter episodes are great bite-sized nuggets to flick to a friend or a family member as a soft introduction for them into becoming more conscious of their food choices and more interested in learning more. And of course, please let both Nicholas and I know what you thought of today's episode too on the socials. In fact, I'd love to know what your greatest takeaway was. Throw it up on your story and tag us so we can see how the information discussed landed with you. You can find both of us on Instagram, Nicholas at Nicholas D. Carter and myself at plant underscore proof. Couple of final notes. First, if you want to hear more about planetary health, if you find this topic interesting, it is one that I've covered quite extensively now. Grab a pen or jump into the notes section of your phone. I'm going to give you a list of episode numbers to write down. You ready? Cool. These are the episodes that you are going to want to listen to. Episode 104, 109, 111, 116, 119, 120, and 127. Get through those and I am absolutely certain you will take your planetary health game to the next level. Lastly, I hope that you've been enjoying the frequency the new frequency of these episodes, the current goal being to consistently bring you at least two episodes per week, a longer format episode at the start of the week, and then a more condensed Wednesday Wisdoms episode midweek. If you are, subscribe to the Apple Podcast or hit follow on Spotify. That way you'll get notified each time a new episode is published and then it will be sitting there waiting for you to listen when you're ready probably the best way to stay informed in case you miss the updates on the socials. That's all I have officially out of words. Thanks for hanging out with me. It's always a great pleasure to be together and I look forward to doing it all again in a few days' time. Until then, don't forget, more plants, my friends, more plants.